The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. This week, George Osborne's independent advisors give his economic forecasts the all clear. Have they all been drinking the same happy juice? Meanwhile, Dublin reveals the cost of its latest bank bailout, slashing the minimum wage and cutting public spending. Does any of that sound familiar? And if the West is down, does that mean China's up? Not so far, says eminent economist George Magnus. We've got an in-depth interview with him later. But before that treat, here in the studio, I've got Jill Trainer and Nils Prattley, who've dashed up the stairs from our business desk. And on the line from a cold hotel room in Dublin, the Observer's business editor, Andrew Clark. Welcome to you all. Now, pretty soon after he moved into number 11, George Osborne created an independent economic forecasting unit. This week, it revised its projections upwards for future UK growth and slashed its forecast of unemployment. It was all music to the Chancellor's ears. Mr Speaker, it's clear that our decisive actions have proved to the world that Britain can live within her means. This government has taken Britain out of the financial danger zone and set our economy on the path to recovery. And that is not only the judgment of the OBR, it is the judgment of the IMF, the OECD, the European Commission, the Bank of England and all the major business organisations in this country. Nils Prattley, how convinced are you by the OBR's projections? Well, it sounds sounds plausible on the basis of what we've seen so far this year. I, I thought one of the main, the main interesting bits about the OBR was the, the way in which Osborne was able to sort of step back and say, look, you know, it's on track. And of course it is. But, you know, we're, this is sort of a five year fiscal consolidation plan. We're in, you know, we've, we've barely round the first corner. So there's an awful lot to be uh, to be seen yet. I mean, the OBR downgraded next year's growth and the year after by by small amounts again pretty plausible but came up with the uh, conclusion that um, the chancellor is is more likely than not to hit his hit his fiscal targets in the end and I you know these are extremely early days that's that's the point I would emphasize and I think you know the the OBR are drawing lines and um, you know checking consistencies and so on so I think it, it, it it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to draw at this stage I think you know next year is the critical point when we see whether business investment is up see whether the job creation actually comes through it's too early to say. Jill one of the things that comes through in the report is that they are still placing an awful lot of hope on exports and business investment as Neil says so basically kind of Osborne's recipe for the British recovery which is those two things, exports and business investment, they, they buy that. What, what do you reckon? Well, it's interesting. I've, I've just come back actually from a meeting with a very senior fund manager in the city. And one of the things his kind of thesis and what he's trying to make his investment decisions are as a, as a stock market investor is the fact that a lot of big companies are currently sitting on a lot of cash. They're sitting on this cash because they're worried about double dip recessions. Should they spend it now? Should they keep it? His argument is maybe Osborne is right. Maybe what will happen is that come the turn of the year, these companies sit back, think, well, you know what, maybe we're not having a double dip recession, and they start investing. They start hiring people again. They start thinking that maybe there is an opportunity to put money back into the British economy. Now, clearly, this is what Osborne needs to happen. He needs this kind of wall of cash that these companies are sitting on to be invested for the OBR's analysis to work. We're kind of in a bit of a catch-22, aren't we? Because if it doesn't happen, mm. then, then in fact, everything the OBR said won't work. And, and to your point about the fact this is about getting private sector to spend and about getting exports out into the wider world, 
we're not going to know, are we, just now? Well, listen, both, both of you go and meet people in the private sector. Um, do you get much sense of them they're really seriously going for a big expansion in their businesses? No, I don't think they're going for big expansion. I think, I think you know, picking up Jill's point, I think at the moment the debate, or at least the debate this year, has been sort of concentrated around is there going to be a double-dip recession? I think as the year has moved on, I think people are being becoming more convinced that there is not. What they see instead which is tallies rather with the OBR forecast, what they see instead is that a steady, very slow, quite plodding, but reasonably consistent growth. And that is sort of not, not an environment to excite and um, stimulate greatly business investment, but it should it should get a little bit it could get a little bit down the line. I think there's confidence is returning. I, I find very few chief executives who who now who now are talking seriously about about a double dip, but um, at the same time, they see no urgency to you know to get their money to, at work straight away. I mean, crucially, there's such a huge amount of uncertainty. That's the reality: is that nobody really wants to make any major long-term decisions. Well. While there are these lingering doubts about the economy and the eurozone, about is there going to, you know, the, the, the situation in Korea, you know, there, there are lots of things standing against companies making big long-term what, what decisions. Yeah, what they've also got is a lot of their investors on their back saying, look, if in doubt, buy back some yeah. of your own shares. But listen, there's a, there's a long way between not as bad as we'd feared and, hey, things are actually getting a bit better. Agreed, agreed. So, so I mean, I, I don't see that as leading to. Well, I think also it's not so much. Assuming that the person I've just come from this meeting with is right, it's not so much about the fact that things have to get a lot better. They just don't have to get worse. Yeah, but George George Osborne is talking about the biggest surge in business investment in three decades. Yeah, I I can't answer that. I, I, I can't come up with a straightforward answer to that question. But what the idea is, provided things don't get worse... And, if, and companies can start to think, OK, this isn't getting any worse, then they can make long-term decisions about the future. Now, whether that leads to George Osborne's great export-led private sector recovery I, is another question altogether. Osborne's also talking about a surge from an extremely low base, is he not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go across the RSC now to Dublin, where the details of the latest bank bailout package are still sinking in. Andrew Clark, you're over there at the moment. One of the quid pro quos for the bailout is that to keep the banking system upright there's going to have to be huge cuts in public spending how's that going down with voters i think there's a good deal of anger and disillusionment here there's anger at the uh, the interest rate on the bailout package which was uh, about 5.8 percent as compared to the interest rate levied on a greek bailout recently of 5.2 percent irish people think they've been hard done by there And uh, there is disillusionment about the kind of conditions that were attached to the bailout, which included a a cut of one euro per hour in the minimum wage, which which has not gone down particularly well with unions. The Irish government has a budget, uh, an austerity budget, that it wants to uh, present to Parliament next week on the 7th of December. And uh, there's really not much more than a 50-50 chance of them getting that through the doyle at the moment. Uh, A lot of... Independent MPs are proving difficult to uh, to win over, and a number of government dissidents are unhappy with it. So, really, in a slightly peculiar position, where one person I spoke to earlier described the IMF, who who are obviously in town, the IMF are now being seen as relatively friendly guys. It's Ireland's European partners who've driven a, a particularly hard bargain on this bailout. So they prefer Washington to Brussels or Berlin. Well, in some ways, the IMF's 
loan to Ireland carries an interest rate of only 4.5%, so it's on slightly more relaxed terms than the Europeans. I think there's also a a kind of natural discontent with having to go to European neighbours for help, particularly given Ireland's historic relationship with the UK. Nils, Andy raises a good point there. Why is it that the European Union has been, or that Mrs Merkel has been so hard on the Dublin government? Well, there's two factors. One, on any sort of bailout, you don't want to um, encourage everybody to go for a bailout. So it has the terms have to be reasonably tough to discourage others from turning up as supplicants. So this is to discourage Lisbon and perhaps Madrid from doing the same thing, is it? Yeah, particularly Madrid. Uh, I'd say. And I think also the, um, I mean, this is all all part of the muddled thinking in Germany. On the one hand, they, they, you know, they want to, they want to be seen to be supporting the euro, so they've got to offer some assistance. On the other hand, you know, viewed from Germany, they resent handing over these loans. They resent the kind of the sense that some of these countries have been living beyond their means. So therefore, there is a desire to sort of to be seen to punish them in the long term, not just for its own sake, but because they think it's sort of morally right. Andy, I'm quite struck by how there's increasing use of the D word in Dublin, D for default. In Greece, eight or nine months ago, they weren't even talking about possibly defaulting on their debts, whereas in Dublin, the crisis comes along and they're already starting to think about how to, to renege on their debts. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's certainly a feeling that senior bondholders in the, uh, the banks here should be taking a haircut, should be taking some of the pain that's been caused by this situation. I was just talking to David Begg, who is the head of the uh, Irish Congress of Trade Unions, and he kind of summed up the view here by saying, until very recently, most members of the public if you'd asked them in the street what they really thought, they'd have said, well, we're looking at two very, couple of very tough years and then we can, we can kind of clamber our way back as a country to where we were before. But as the terms of this, this rescue package have emerged, I think there's a, a realisation sinking in that this is going to be a very, very long haul and that where Ireland was before is simply not a sustainable position. Jill, the, the whole reason why Dublin wanted to avoid any mention of default was to retain its credibility in the international financial community. What would those bondholders be making of all this talk at the moment? Are they taking it seriously? There was a real concern, I think particularly on Friday night, when we were still waiting for the final terms of the bailout, that in fact bondholders would be able to would be forced to take this haircut. You know, it's a, it's a great phrase, but it, it kind of means you need to take some sort of loss on your holdings. And what kind of loss were they thinking? Well, actually, the thought of taking any loss was more than the market could bear. There was talk on Friday night that we were going to be in the kind of entirely new phase of the financial crisis where we'd have yet another credit crunch. And we could see on Friday afternoon that trading in bonds in AIB, Bank of Ireland, even some of the bailed out banks in the UK was really drying up. The fear being that, as you know, a lot of this debt is held by other banks, they're forced to take losses, and then they stop lending to each other, and then we're all again in, in, in a new phase of the crunch. So this thing about bondholders taking losses is actually feels very geeky. It's actually fundamentally important to the way this crisis goes on. And there are some people who think that until there is some sort of default, be it by a bank, be it by a sovereign, that this crisis in some ways won't be solved. It's a kind of it's, it's a difficult argument, but there are some people thinking that one of the reasons we've still got this huge level of uncertainty in the eurozone is that the authorities still haven't addressed. Angela Merkel's big question is, what do you do about making the private sector share the burden of countries that are over-indebted and banks that are in trouble? 
Niels, what's the answer to that? Well, one theory, maybe a slightly um, convoluted theory or, or uh, uh, adventurous theory, is that you know the strategy here is to kick the can down the road, you know, defer the problems until a day when they can be addressed more safely. I.e., so what you do is pour on more cheap money from the from the US Fed and maybe the ECB will even continue in that game as well. You reflate assets, uh, you make people feel wealthier you get the you know the price of property rising you get stock markets higher again and at that point you are able to restructure the debts in a in a less dangerous manner and you know there may be something of that going on that that may be a thought at the back of all this meanwhile Niels and jill what's your betting that we'll be talking about portugal in a couple of months time do we have moved on from portugal in a couple of months time well, you're, you're saying you'll we'll be talking Christmas. about Portugal in a month's time. Well, no, we'll have, well, you said, you said a couple of months. In a couple of months, we'll have moved on from Portugal. We'll I be think, look, look it feels terrible to sort of like make these sort of sweeping comments about entire nations sort of going for bailouts. But I think if you're, you know, pressed, I think you'd have to say, yeah, Portugal is a sort of uh, not a nailed on certainty, but highly probable to be a bailout. And the real test will come with Spain. And I think opinion is divided with Spain about whether it will need a bailout or whether it could sort of tough it out and avoid it. I think opinion is genuinely divided on Spain. Andy, you packing for Lisbon? Well, I think one thing worth bearing in mind is that it's a slightly different sort of crisis in Spain and Portugal. I mean, in Ireland, the crisis very much resides with the banks, which are pretty much all bust. And I don't I think it's a rather more nuanced position in Portugal, where I think they've been struggling with uh, uncompetitive industries on on a on a wider front. And, and, And in Spain, Spain actually has some of the most robust banks in Europe, Santander, for example. So I don't think the parallels are quite as clear as some people suggest. Now, as Europe and the rest of the West continues to bail itself out and lay off workers, the conventional wisdom is that Asia, in particular China, is on the rise. But that's not the view of our next guest, the chief economist at Swiss bank UBS, George Magnus. I think that the financial crisis has not only shocked the West in ways that I think we all kind of understand now, probably for a decade or so. But I think as a consequence of that, it has also impacted emerging countries like the like China and India and, and others in ways that aren't quite as obvious. Um, so I'll give you kind of two very brief examples. The first is the world system basically is made up of debtor countries and creditor countries. So if the debtor countries have been shocked into saving more, the creditor countries have to save less. China, obviously, is the biggest creditor of them all. And if China does save less and switches its economic model more towards consumption and domestic demand, then the world can basically rebalance quite nicely. If it doesn't, uh, for one reason or another, then we're all going to go down in to a kind of a, not a necessarily a, an economic collapse, but output growth, employment, business activity will be lower across the board, including in emerging markets. And, uh, and it might be against a background of growing protectionism, which we've seen a lot of evidence of during the last two years, while G20 leaders have been professing to shun it. Uh, the second example, uh, just to illustrate how the world has changed, is that Because the growth in the West is going to be so much lower in the next 10 years than it has been for the last 20, 
countries like China that have been kind of building out capacity to sell high-tech goods and, you know, cement and uh, steel and aluminium and so on and so forth, the market in the West is going to be substantially smaller. My estimate is that in the OECD, rich countries, by 2020, the GDP of of that group will be about $21 trillion lower than it otherwise might have been if there hadn't been a financial crisis. So these are all signals to the major emerging markets that they have to change too. And I think that this is a big, big ask for some of them where political, legal, social institutions are either relatively rigid or or may not be up to the task. So if others are talking about China being number one nation by 2030, what's Magnus' prediction? Well, uh, the, the subtitle of my book, Uprising, is Will Emerging Markets Shape or Shake the World Economy? And I, I've no doubt that they will continue to shape it simply by, well, by virtue of the fact that they are poorer countries that have lots of labor. They have very high returns to, to capital. And uh, where they have good governance and good economic and political management, for example, Brazil is kind of a poster child for this in the last 10 or 15 years. I think they, they clearly will play a very, very significant impact in, in changing the way the world works. But this is a long way from saying that by 2030 or by 2040 uh, that China will rule the world or that uh, you know the emerging markets will have taken over from the rich countries and that we're kind of back in a world system that existed 2,000 years ago. I, don't th- I think that's too simple by far. But you go further than that. You say China might be next Japan. Well, I think it might be in the sense that there's a lot of dispute, uh, particularly between the United States and the Chinese, over what to do with China's exchange rate. And China's argument is we don't want to do the same mistake as the Japanese did by allowing uh, the yen to appreciate during the 1980s. Actually, I think the Chinese misunderstand that. I think the, the Japanese problem was that Japan spent so long trying to repress the value of the yen that they created an asset bubble which eventually uh, burst in their faces. And I think this is the path that China is treading down. Uh, so there may be all sorts of reasons why China is reluctant to uh, free up uh, the movement of the of the RMB, and there may be many reasons uh, justifiable within China why they keep uh, interest rates repressed. For example, uh, the deposit rates for consumers is about two percent in an economy that's growing at a nominal rate of around twelve. Uh, so th- these. China-specific issues, though, are that they need to be changed because otherwise China may itself create the kind of asset inflation which it's very conscious about. Uh, But sometimes countries get kind of locked like rabbits in headlights to particular kinds of policies. And, And within, I would say within five years, we will know whether China has kind of smelt the coffee in terms of uh, you know, being able to change its, its monetary and its exchange rate policies or, or whether it will be pursuing a kind of a Japanese-style route which may end up with an investment bust. One might listen to what you've just said and think, yeah, uh, if China keeps on being this export-dependent and keeps on acting as kind of the world's number one creditor nation, then yeah, it's heading for trouble. But surely the way around that, and it's one that uh, Hu Jintao talked about before is for China to concentrate more upon developing its domestic economy you know all those bits from the midwest on and to have more what people call social safety nets to have greater health and education provision and to pay its workers more I mean 
I can see I can see a future for China in which it becomes stronger, but perhaps also more inward looking as well. That's quite possible. And in fact, I, I don't really doubt the belief and the assertions which are made by Chinese leaders, evidently already in the draft 12th five-year plan, which will be approved or rubber stamped by the People's Congress next spring, in which they talk again, not for the first time, by the way, but in which they talk again about moving uh, the kind of the center of gravity from coastal areas inland, from you know companies to consumers, from prosperous uh, cities to the countryside and so on. So all of these are very laudable and, and they clearly do represent a, a genuine belief by China that, that rebalancing for them has arrived now or the need for it has arrived. But saying it and actually sharing vested political and economic interests from very strong factions that are uh, that that have you know very deep roots in the coastal areas, in the cities, and in the corporate and manufacturing sector. Sharing those vested interests with the rest of the economy, as it were, actually is easier said than done. And and my concern is firstly about uh, the possibility of a lack of political will, and secondly about the quality of China's institutions. I mean, that's the China's soft underbelly for millennia has always been weak institutions, and I don't think that this uh, Communist Party, even though it's shed its Marxism, is still thoroughly Confucian. And, and I think the weakness of institutions actually is a blockage or will represent a blockage in being able to, to make this economic transition. I do think younger generations of Chinese may have a different view about this, but that's for the future. You see, where this takes us is uh, from the problems of China being perhaps a technical one to do with foreign exchange policy and monetary policy to being a deep-rooted structural one about its its political system, its lack of democracy and perhaps lack of openness and innovation. Are you, I mean, what's your answer to those sort of bigger questions about China? Yeah, and I, and I think that's a very good point that you make, uh, because obviously the, the idea about making macroeconomic policy mistakes in the next two or three years is, is quite separate. Everybody does those, and maybe China won't be an exception. But the issue of real transition and making this enormous shift on a scale which I think is comparable uh, to the shift which was unleashed by Deng Xiaoping when the reforms came into being in 1978 and, and thereafter. But this is bigger. This is much bigger, firstly, because China is now a big power and it does have an impact on everybody else, not only its regional neighbors, but, but more distant countries too. And also because the scale of the threat to the Communist Party from the economic reforms, legal reforms, political reforms, which have to be undertaken, I think is very, very significant. I mean, quite recently, Wen Shibao uh, was kind of very outspoken about the need for political reform. Uh, in China, they called it universal values, which was about rethinking the way in which, um, well, rethinking political rights, actually. And uh, all of that's gone very quiet. And I think Wen has been effectively shut up, certainly in the run up to the leadership changeover in 2012. So my contention really is that these big changes in China, it's not that they're not possible. It's not that it can't be done or the Chinese don't have it in them to do it. It's just that I don't think they are uh, readily 
doable by a communist party that really rules in the interests of the communist party and not in terms of uh, the sharing of power and the, and, and the ceding of political rights and legal concessions, which I think will become part of China's next big development phase. It's an interesting exercise to point out the weaknesses in what we see as being the world's coming giant. But if you look uh, on the other side of the world to America, it's hard to see how that will retain its position as it's you know the world's hyperpower. I agree uh, that America faces a you know an economic and and well an economic crisis unparalleled since the 1930s and a political uh, standoff or gridlock uh, after the November congressional elections, which is deeply disturbing from the point of view of how are they going to get out of this. So in that sense, it does look rather bleak. I have to confess. However, I just think it's not appropriate yet to basically draw a straight line into the next 10, 20 years and say that this will always be the case in the United States and it's on a course of irreversible decline. I think America still has a lot of of things going for it, Uh, other than the fact that the Congress is gridlocked for the time being. I mean, its political institutions are still fundamentally robust. It has a spirit of innovation and cultural uh, well, entrepreneurial transformation, I should say, which is second to none. And, and I don't really see that Americans, rather than American politicians, are basically going to give up on the things that have driven them many times in the past to reinvent themselves when they've had crises. Uh, it has a flexible economy. It's a very open economy. And I think that the ability to rediscover new sources of growth and to, to reboot, should we say, uh, the kind of Washington consensus, I think is actually something we should not dismiss out of hand. Uh, it may seem rather murky at this stage. And I'm not saying that America won't have to share power in the future in ways which it hasn't done since 1945. But I think um, my own belief is that I think the United States will remain the prominent, if not the dominant power for quite a long time to come. Give me the Magnus view the world in 2030 then. I think in 2030, uh, provided we don't uh, lapse collectively into kind of a dark era of uh, mutual protectionism and, uh, you know, really fractious international relations, I think the world in 2030, to be honest, will be a better place. We'll have gotten over the debt crisis, I think, in most Western economies, but not all of them. Um, In 20 years' time, we might just have got to the end of that. Well, I just think that there will be some countries that will bear the scars for an awfully long time to come. Um, Which ones? Well, I think think some of the Eurozone economies may take many, many years to get out of this. Um, I I suspect that in the more flexible economies and ones where uh, social pressure for uh, well, let me put it like this. Japan has spent 20 years uh, trying to stagnate very well after its own kind of financial bust. And I think particularly in Anglo-Saxon economies, I just don't think people will stand for that. Um, and uh, and so I think the stimulus to reboot, um, I think, will come about. And, uh, you know, we, we'll have a number of interesting cases, I think, to watch over the next couple of years where people will either resent being mismanaged by governments or um, or will actually demand uh, assertive policies to try to, to, to get out of this. So I, I'm actually quite optimistic about that uh, in a way. And I'm optimistic that, um, that 
political change in China and uh, the development of you know stronger governance in countries like India, for example, um, will uh, public sector governance, I would say, uh, will will make the world a better place, and and that these problems that we share today about you know trade imbalances and all the things that we keep arguing about at the G20, that that these things will will eventually pass by, but um, you know it's. Um, 20 years is a long time, and um, as Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead, and it's, it's the world that we have to live in today that matters, and I think it's, it still looks quite fractious. So, um, long-term optimist, but um, difficult path. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to my guest, Jill Trainer, Niels Prattley, and in Dublin, Andrew Clark. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.